the president does have an extraordinary self-preservation instinct. And I've noticed this about him over the last 17 years. He will get right up to the line and then somehow have the instinct to be able to not go so far over that line that he gets himself in trouble, real trouble. I'm Tina Brown, and you're listening to TBD. Remember that 2013 Time magazine cover that featured New Jersey Governor Chris Christie under the headline, The Elephant in the Room? That was when Christie was the brash favorite to be the GOP nominee for president, famed for his confrontational and in-your-face style. I remember sitting opposite him in the first-class compartment on Amtrak on the way back from the White House Correspondents' Dinner, a few months after he'd won a landslide re-election. He was in a jubilant huddle with his political posse, exuding a boisterous, I'm a contender bravado. Then came Bridgegate. That's when members of his team shut down lanes on the George Washington Bridge to snarl traffic as retaliation against a New Jersey mayor who declined to endorse Christie. Christie was cleared of any direct role, but the endless questions around the scandal and the seamy portrait of his inner circle plunged his poll numbers into the tank, and he was an early casualty in the GOP presidential primaries. So Christie hopped aboard the Trump train, shoveling coal into the engine of right-wing populism that would carry the reality TV star to the Oval Office. But as we all know, he didn't get much thanks for it. After the jobs were dangled in front of him, he was passed over for VP, Attorney General and head of the RNC, then fired as head of Trump's transition team. It's all in his entertaining and blunt memoir, Let Me Finish. Christie is now an ABC News contributor and my guest today on TBD. Welcome, Governor Christie. Tina, really happy to be here with you. So right now, many of Trump's aides who spoke to Robert Mueller are anxious about how Trump will retaliate. And you have some pretty tart things to say about the chaos in Trump land in your book. How has the president responded to the book? Well, um, in my book, he responded really well. I mean, uh, he gave an interview to Maggie Haberman of The New York Times where he told her he thought the book was great and I was very good to him. And as far as the kind of direct things I had to say about some former aides and some family members, uh, he was unmoved by it. Uh, And I think, Tina, it's because he knew it was all true. Trump did make you head of his transition team, you know, when he was running. And you put together 30 binders of recommendations that were put in the dumpster, you say, by Jared Kushner and Reince Priebus when you were fired. And frankly, Trump has been plagued with staff turnover and chaos ever since. Has he ever apologized to you or expressed regret, perhaps, that he didn't use all that work in the transition binders? For the first time just recently, Tina, um, he and I were having a conversation back in January. And he said to me, you know, looking back on it, um, we should have never done, did what we did to you regarding the transition. And he said, it really set me back. And it was the first time he had ever admitted that to me. Uh, prior to that, he'd always made some kind of excuses about it. But I think he knows full well that what happened to him, in the, especially in the first six months of his presidency, which got off to such a difficult start, could have been avoided by the better people around him and a better process put in place to be able to get things done when you have the most capital at the beginning of a presidency. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, because, I mean, you couldn't have had more chaos. Um, In fact, the New York Times said that Russian access to Trump's circle was facilitated more by the chaos and the amateurishness, really, than than by any collusion, as we found out. Did you feel some vindication when you read that? Sure. Yeah. And and, and I felt it from, from the time. I mean, you know, even during the campaign when I was off running the transition, 
I, I would talk to Donald on a regular basis and you know, just said to him, you know, you, you, you can't have people who are so inexperienced at running a campaign. I, and I didn't know anything about what was going on with Russia, but I, I just knew having run a presidential campaign myself that, you know, it's very complicated. And if you have amateurs in charge, which for the most part he did, um, it's going to create trouble. Yeah. Yeah, well, it did. So on the other hand, of course, there were some staffers uh, that came out well, right? And in the Mueller report, I mean, he says that uh, Trump tried but failed to commit obstruction because numerous staffers, including uh, White House counsel Don McGahn and uh, Corey Lewandowski, actually declined to carry out orders. Do you think, do you consider McGahn a hero in this story? I do, yeah. as do I consider Lewandowski. I mean, these are folks who are very close to the president. I mean, Don was his campaign lawyer throughout the campaign. Corey was his first campaign manager and really helped to put Donald Trump on the map politically. Um, They both are really talented, smart people, but they also are two people who are grounded in what's right and what's wrong. Don from a legal perspective and Corey from a political one. And I think they both served the president extraordinarily well by refusing to do what he asked them to do. Yeah. Well, what does it say to you, though, about the president, that his presidency was really only protected because staffers refused to do what he told them? I think having been a chief executive of a state for eight years, it's very emotional at times, very difficult, the job. And you need staff people around you who are going to say no, who are going to bring you back down to earth every once in a while when you need it, who are going to say to you, let you blow off steam and then come back an hour later and say, you know, we can't do any of that or you can't say that or whatever the problem may be. So I think the president you know, was served extraordinarily well by these folks. But I also think that it's not unprecedented that you have uh, chief executives who at times get emotional about things and want to do things that don't make sense and that may even border on the illegal or the unethical. And that having good, smart, strong people around you um, helps everybody when they're going to make mistakes in judgment. We've all made mistakes in judgment, Tina. And luckily, if we have people around us who rein us in a little bit, you know, it's, it's a good thing for the individual. Yeah, but it's he a great fa- thing for the country. But he actually fires people when they try to rein him in. But, but you know, he didn't fire him again when he tried to rein him in, interestingly. A couple of times. He didn't fire Sessions when Sessions recused himself. Now, he, he abused him terribly, but he didn't fire him. The president does have an extraordinary self-preservation instinct. And I've noticed this about him over the last 17 years. He will get right up to the line and then somehow have the instinct to be able to not go so far over that line that he gets himself in trouble, real trouble. And so I, I do think there is something about the fact that when, because as, as I detail in my book and as was detailed in the Mueller report, I pushed back on him a number of times as well. And our friendship remains the same today. I think it's about how you communicate with the president. And I think it's about how you handle yourself in terms of being consistent in terms of the way you give advice that prevents you perhaps from getting fired. Well, I mean, as a former U.S. attorney for New Jersey, what do you think about the way that uh, Trump unfailingly trashes the Justice Department and, and, and assails judges? Does that does that trouble you? Well, I've told him over the course of time that um, I think it doesn't serve him well. And I think the, the things he said about Mueller prior to the report haven't served him well because, in essence, the report exonerates him on collusion. And on obstruction, says we can't reach a conclusion. Well, but he's busy that, trashing him again now. Right. And I think that, you know, that's just not helpful. It's not helpful to the people who work really hard in the Justice Department to try to get things right. Now, listen, there are some people who didn't 
conduct themselves well in all this. Jim Comey, Andrew McCabe, Peter Strzok, Lisa McCabe, who did not um, act in a way that I think is consistent with Justice Department values. And they, but they deserve to be called out individually not the department as a whole. Mm-hmm. Well, the report revealed that Mueller found enough evidence of potential crimes to make 14 different criminal referrals to other federal prosecutors. And so far, only two of these have officially been made public. What do you think of the particular vulnerabilities that are for Trump from these other investigations as you kind of deduce it with your experience? Well, I've always said that I think the Southern District of New York is a much more difficult problem for the president than Bob Mueller was. And the reason for that is Bob Mueller was restricted to just, you know, Russia, where the Southern District of New York can go anywhere, Tina, wherever this evidence leads them, they can go. And I think the reason Mueller did what he did was because it was outside his purview. Mm-hmm. And I would say if I were the president, having 12 criminal referrals out there um, over a period of the next two years is something that's unsettling. I would say very yeah. unsettling, and actually, you say to him at one point, I think in the book, um, you know, which was candid. I mean, you said uh, I've been investigating myself, and you were for the Bridgegate uh, scandal uh, that when you were accused of, of ordering up the lane closing in the George Washington Bridge as a political vendetta, and you said, you know, you never know where these things are going to go. Why do you think that Trump seems so perennially surprised, though, that that he couldn't control these investigations? I mean, he's a very sophisticated man who's, you know, who's been involved in litigation himself. He knows he knows what it means to be investigated. He should know. Um, but I got to tell you that um, almost everything he did during this period of time seemed contrary to someone who was experienced and knowledgeable about this type of thing. And that's why there was a phrase I used to him all the time, which drove him crazy. I said, you know, Mr. President, there's no way to make this shorter, but there are lots of ways to make it longer. And you're doing that. And I think that he'd be much better served if over the course of time he would take a deep breath and allow people just to do their job, especially regarding the Russia situation when he knew that nothing wrong had happened. Um, But he didn't have the patience to just let that will out. He kept trying to force it to come sooner. And you can't when you're I've looked at this from both perspectives. As someone who for seven years as U.S. attorney conducted investigations, and then, as you mentioned before, someone who was investigated during the Bridgegate matter and exonerated. I would have wanted that exoneration to happen a lot sooner than the three years it took for that to come. But I also knew there was no way for me to force that. I wasn't making those decisions, and I sat there and I kept my mouth shut. Right. must have been very difficult and rather painful. It stunk. <laughs> it's awful. You know, you're, you it. there's no way to... And and that's why I have some empathy for the president in the respect that if you know you've done nothing wrong, it is terribly difficult to sit around and wait for the justice system to grind through everything they need to grind through to get there. But that's why I tried to have him benefit from my experience, which obviously he did not, um, to say there's no way to stop this So and there's no way to speed it up. So just let it go and move on and do your job in other respects. And that's what I did when I was governor. But I, I, I honestly say it was not easy and it was not pleasant. I know that you're quite close with Rudy Giuliani, but he seems to be a pretty chaotic representative, frankly, for the president. I mean, he's always having to walk back his statements. He just said he sees nothing wrong with taking information from foreign powers. It seems like he's bungled the handling of Michael Cohen, who, you know, who reached out multiple times and could have been stopped from really turning on the president, which has been a bit lethal, frankly, Michael Cohen's, uh, you know, turning uh, against him. What gives with Rudy Giuliani? Well, Mayor and I have been friends for a very long time. And um, I think what the mayor is is less of a lawyer and more of a PR guy for the president. And I think he reflects completely 
what the president wants him to say and less what Rudy would say if using and exercising his own judgment. And I think that's what you see here. I think uh, Rudy has decided that he's willing to be that PR spokesman for the president, and he, that's exactly what he's doing. On the Cohen stuff, I'd say to you, I don't think there was anything that could have turned Michael Cohen to being a Trump advocate once they uncovered all the separate crimes that Cohen had been engaged in that really had nothing to do with Trump, tax fraud and other issues. Once that happens, Tina, as a former prosecutor, um, we've got the guy right where we want him. And if he, the, the rule in the Justice Department is if you're going to cooperate with us and get credit, you have to cooperate on everything we ask, right. not just the stuff that we're no, investigating you, 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 you on. You've got to vomit it all out. Exactly right. <laughs> Very well put. And that's exactly what we expect. We used to say to the folks, you have to put on the Team America jersey. And you're on Team America now, and that means that you're going to give us everything that you have. And if we find out you're holding back on us, you'll get no credit for what you've done. So I think the Cohen thing was kind of unavoidable no matter what Rudy did. But I think the way to look at Giuliani here is that Giuliani has become the most high-profile spokesperson um, in recent American political history. And he is channeling the emotions, the statements, the feelings of the president of the United States. Right. That's a bit alarming. Um, you know, you ran against Trump and someone is going to run against him this next year. Yep. So let's talk about, you know, who might beat Trump on the Democratic side. What does it take? I mean, you, you've been there. Well, I think it's an enduring mystery, to tell you the truth. I think he is so different as a political candidate than anything I've ever seen in my life. And I think anything that this country has ever experienced, that there's there's no playbook yet on this. So I think Someone who could give him a run is Joe Biden. And the reason I say that is because, in essence, this election was decided by about 80,000 voters in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And most of those voters were white, working-class voters. I think if you look at the now 19 candidates on the other side uh, of the aisle, the, the, the one who can best have an opportunity to appeal to those white, working-class voters is Joe Biden. But is he going to lose the left who also have to come out? I mean, you, you have to bring those people out. Well, too. I think the pro- his problem with the left is going to be in the primary, not in the general. I think, Tina, in the general, it'll be very similar to what happened three years ago with, with Donald Trump. The right was highly suspicious of Donald Trump as a messenger of their, of their liking. However, Hillary Clinton was an unacceptable alternative to them, and therefore they're going to vote for Trump, and they did vote for Trump this time could be the exact opposite, that even if the left, if Joe Biden were to get through the primary, even if the left is suspicious of Biden and think he may not be progressive liberal enough, he's certainly more progressive and liberal than Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And they have such hatred for Trump now that I think they vote for Biden just out of voting against Trump. And one other thing I'd say is I think that that's where Biden's greatest risk is. I don't know that he can make it through the primary. I just don't know. But his best argument is electability. So if you were running against him now, um, Governor, what would you be running on? Against? Trump. Trump. Well, I, I, you know, there's not enough substantive issue differences for me to run against Trump, you know, in a primary. I mean, I, I just think we agree on too much substantively. Now, we're very different stylistically, and I would approach things and would have approached things very differently than the president has. Um, but that's why I've so- said to people, whether it's Bill Weld, who's announced, or anybody else who's rumored, my good friend Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, I mean, I've told Larry flat out, there's no way you can win. Um, Trump's 85 to 90% popular among the Republican primary voters. It's a very narrow landing strip 
try to land a primary campaign against a sitting president. So I don't think there's an effective way to run against Donald Trump right now from inside the Republican Party. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. According to a book, Trump told you that it might have been you in the Oval Office had it not been for Bridgegate. Do you think that's true? I do. And do you think he would have run if you hadn't had Bridgegate? Would he have not run against you? Can't be 100% sure, obviously, because we're dealing with my friend Donald Trump. But I think it would have been much less likely. I mean, if you think about it, Tina, where we were right before Bridgegate broke, um, I had just gotten reelected in a blue state with 61% of the vote, with 51% a majority of the Latino vote with 29% of the African-American vote. Now, just compare that to what Mitt Romney had done the year earlier. He had done 8% of the African-American vote, and he had gotten 34% of the Latino vote. So, you know, and I was beating Hillary Clinton in national polls. So I think absent Bridgegate, things would have been significantly different. You know, you've been through this. It's politics, so who knows what could have happened or not happened. But certainly I think there were a lot of people who began thinking about running after that happened, who were not thinking about it beforehand. Sure. But, you know, when I look at your record, you know, you as a Republican leading a deep blue state, I mean, you you did pride yourself on working with Democrats, reaching across the aisle to get things done, garnering these votes that you just spoke about that, you know, was an unusual thing for a Republican governor. And that really does seem kind of antithetical to Trump's style of politics. So I guess one question I would have is, why would a self-styled sort of pragmatist like you align you know, so fast because you were the first to jump mm-hmm. uh, for Trump after you dropped out yourself. You, you you went very fast for Trump. Why did you do that when it was really not your own style or your own principles, really, that, that you'd espoused? Yeah, I, I didn't want Hillary Clinton to win. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, Tina, um, American elections are not about who you want to win. It's about who's left. Right. I say to people all the time when they ask me this question. Um, let's not confuse anything. Donald Trump was not my first choice for president. I was my first choice for president. <laughs> um, and you know, the fact is, though, at that point, Tina, here's what had happened. He had gotten second place in Iowa by a whisker to Ted Cruz. He had beaten everybody in New Hampshire two to one in one of the best fields I think we've ever had in the Republican Party. And then he got down to South Carolina and won by double digits. Now, if that had happened to Mitt Romney four years earlier, everyone would have said it's over. The only reason they didn't was because it was Trump and they were blinded by it. I saw it. And I said, okay, this guy's going to be the nominee. So this means it's going to come down to Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And I don't want Hillary Clinton to be president. So let me get in there early, try to help Donald Trump become a better candidate so that he'll be a better president. You often uh, in the book actually talk about how, uh, you know, you were brought in by Trump's inner circle to talk him off the ledge when he was pursuing you know, no-win attacks against people like Judge Curiel and the Gold Star Khan family. Um, as someone who knows Trump very well, why do you think he doubles down on these self-defeating vendettas? I mean, 
you know, you you saw there was no political gain in those sort of jihads that he waged against Curiel and, you know, who was actually an American-born judge. He was actually, you know, enormously rigorous record in terms of prosecuting terrorists and so forth. I mean, how do you explain the psychology of that? I believe that this is a guy who needs to be in a fight all the time. Mm-hmm. I once said to his son-in-law, and I think this was in the book as well, like, he, he needs an enemy. Mm-hmm. He needs an enemy all the time. And so part of the job of a good staff is to help to pick those enemies so that he doesn't pick him himself. <laughs> you know, the fact is that um, he believes every time he's punched, he has to counterpunch twice as hard. Um, whether or not it's the right thing to do, whether or not it's an effective thing to do. And that's the way he's conducted himself his whole career. So I-, I tried to tell him that in this new business he was in, it's not always the right way to go. Because in a real estate deal, you know, Tina, you've been involved in them, I've been involved in them, you know, you, you negotiate, you make a deal, there's going to be some difficulty during it. But once the matter closes and everybody gets what they want, the seller, the money, and the buyer, the property, everybody goes away relatively happy. That's not the way it is in politics. People, um, they lay in the tall grass and wait for you if you've given them a hard time. And I think the president had a hard time understanding that when he initially got into politics. Um, you were with Trump in Trump Tower on election night uh, in that small inner circle. Describe what you saw and heard as Trump watched the returns. I was very struck by that in the book. It's a very good scene. Well, he, you know, it was clear to me, first of all, we had all been on a call at about 5.30 in the afternoon getting exit poll results, which at that moment predicted Hillary Clinton would win 360 electoral votes. So when I got in my car to head to Trump Tower at 6 p.m. that evening, no one was optimistic. So I went into Trump Tower that night, and that was certainly the mood in the building. From him on down was that, oh, let's watch this now and see see how this happens and how close is it going to be or not. But no one was thinking they were going to win. And I tell the story in the book that that there was no victory speech written. I, I know Stephen, that was amazing that Lewandowski said. I, it was actually Stephen Miller. It was Stephen Miller who's now famous for being the immigration person in the White House, but Stephen was his, his speechwriter. And Stephen came to me and said, I have a problem, I need your help. And I said, what's the problem? And he said, I have an exquisitely crafted concession speech, <laughs> but I only have bullet points on a victory speech. So watching Donald that night, as it got better and better, he clearly was overwhelmed. And he went unexpectedly silent, you say? He was very quiet. And then when it started to look like we were going to win Pennsylvania... He turned to me, and Mike Pence was sitting on his right side. I was sitting on his left. And he looked at me and he said, we should go upstairs. Because we were in a room on the 14th floor of Trump Tower with probably about 100 people. So we should go upstairs. And a small group of us, just his family, the Pence family, the top people in the campaign, there were probably maybe 18 to 20 of us in the room, went up to his apartment. And that's where we watched the rest of it. Uh, and, and by the time it got near him leaving for the hotel, even though Hillary had not yet conceded, you could see he was starting to own it. Mm-hmm. But it took that few hours for him to make the conversion from someone who had heard at 5.30 that he was going to lose in a landslide to wind up winning with over 300 electoral votes six, seven hours later. Yeah. It was and amazing you, to watch. Amazing. And you and Miller and Ivanka then were banging out the victory speech. Yeah, along with Mike Pence. Yeah, we were all sitting there <laughs> writing it together at the at the Trump dining room table. You've had a lot of run-ins really with Jared Kushner, haven't you? And uh, you feel that it was he who nixed you uh, as vice president, as attorney general. And 
you obviously put it down to the fact that, well, everyone puts it down to the fact that, of course, you prosecuted his father, Charles Kushner, um, as a person, you know, who had witnessed tampering and, and, and tax evasion and so on and actually sent him to prison, right? Yes. They sound a pretty toxic family, the Kushners. Well, listen, I can only tell you what my personal experience has been. I, I have to tell you, I've never met Charles Kushner. I mean, I've seen him. I've been in courtrooms with him. But we've never said hello to each other. I've never met him. And until the late winter of 2016, I'd never met Jared Kushner. What I can tell you is his father participated in some of the most despicable crimes I've ever seen um, in my seven years as a prosecutor. To actually hire a prostitute to pursue your own sister's husband, seduce him, videotape that seduction, and then send it to your own sister on the day of her son's engagement party? It's pretty wild. It's pretty extraordinary stuff. Yeah. And, and you have to have a very, very dark side to do something like that. And I remember discussing this one time with the president, and I said to him, come on now, you're a fighter and you battled. I said, would you ever, ever do something like that to Marianne, his sister, who is a, um, a Third Circuit Court of Appeals judge? And he looked at me and said, no, I can never do that to my sister. I said, well, that's my point. So I make no apologies for prosecuting Charles Kushner. And by the way, Tina, here's the second wealthiest guy in New Jersey who has Ben Brofman, a guy I'm sure you're familiar with, one of the biggest criminal defense attorneys in this region, as his lawyer, and he pleads guilty three weeks after we bring charges. You know what that means? He is guilty, and he went to jail because he deserved to go to jail. And I, and that was my job at the time. Now, no one could have written this novel as to what would happen from 2004 to 2016 and how our lives would then become intertwined again. But I've had any number of people ask me, would you do anything differently if you knew then what you knew now? And, and the answer is absolutely not. My job then was to send people who broke federal law to prison. Charles Kushner broke federal law in a really egregious, ugly, personal way, and he deserved to go to prison. And do you think he is still an influence on his son, Jared? Oh, of course he is. He is the single biggest influence on his son. His son idolizes him. And, and you know what, Tina, that's fine. I mean, I think it's great for a son to idolize his father, even if his father's made mistakes. But we need to understand what that influence means and who that person is. Do you think that um, Ivanka Trump has a future political career? Well, listen, anybody who wants a future political career can try to have one. The real question is going to be, as it is for any child of an elected official, do they measure up? Because the scrutiny on them will be much greater than was ever on her father. So... If Ivanka is ready for that and can sustain it and withstand it, she could have a career. Now, well, I mean, her father said that he wanted her to run the World Bank. How do you feel about that? I think that would have been a huge mistake. And as I've said to him and I said in the book, um, I think him putting Ivanka and Jared in official positions was an enormous mistake. Family will always be informal advisors, Tina. You sit around the dinner table. You talk on the phone. You socialize on vacation. They're going to give you their opinions. And they should. Their family, my family gave me their opinions. But once you put them in a job, you make them subject to scrutiny by Congress. You make them subject to scrutiny by prosecutors. You make them subject to scrutiny by the media every day. And I think he's ill-served them and ill-served himself. Because by the way, you know, Jared Kushner was the one who recommended he fired Jim Comey when he did and how he did. And I know that Jared thought it was a great idea because he called me afterwards and told me he thought it was a great idea. Well, you know what? Anybody else who had done that would have gotten fired. He didn't. Why? Well, they have to have Thanksgiving together. This is why we don't put relatives in those positions, because they're not fireable. And you can't, right? So you can't, 
this is a huge mistake on his part, and the World Bank would have been even a bigger mistake. And so I just good with numbers. He said. Well, I heard that, but I give Ivanka credit for saying no. Yeah. And I think the president has ill-served himself by having his daughter and his son-in-law in the White House. I don't think it makes sense. I think it's hurt him. It's not a family business anymore. It's a $4 trillion government. That's different. I guess one of the things that hit me when I read your book, because you're very candid about it, is, you know, you went through a lot of humiliations in your in your service of Trump's mission. Um, you know, you were turned down for vice president, for attorney general. And then I thought the worst behavior was when you were offered the uh, chairmanship of the RNC and then had it kind of yanked back by Rance Priebus. And then you headed up this transition uh, committee and, and, and you were fired from that and your, your work was trashed. I mean, why did you take all that? Because I love my country. And I believe in public service, Tina, right? Yeah. So if you believe... I mean, because you're a very feisty... I mean, you've always been a pretty kind of pugnacious character yourself. I mean, I'm not sure that, that I could have eaten that much crow for my country. Well, I didn't sit back and just take it now, did I? I wrote a book about it. Right. Right? And so everybody now knows about what happened and has my side of the story. So my point is, you know, I did those things because I believed that I could help to make the country better. I didn't take them sitting down. I mean, there were a lot of conversations, as you saw in the book, where I was myself and I fought back with Steve Bannon in the very beginning of the book very vigorously about how this was all going to work. But in the end, I was very clear about what I would do and what I wouldn't do, what I would take and what I wouldn't take. And the president now has offered me seven different jobs in the administration since that time, and I've said no to all of them. So I think if you look at the totality of it, um, I was motivated by trying to put myself in a position, either as vice president or attorney general, to help the president and help the country. And when those things didn't come, there were no other jobs I was interested in. I told the president that a long time ago, um, and, and I think he now finally believes me. Every day to learn more and advance their careers. LinkedIn understands what they're interested in and what they're looking for, which means when you use LinkedIn jobs to hire someone, your matches are based on so much more than an impressive resume. LinkedIn jobs uses knowledge of both hard and soft skills to match you with the right people to fit the role you need to fill. In other words, the people you're truly excited about hiring. Customers rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires. Post a job listing today at linkedin.com slash Tina and get $50 off your first post. That's linkedin.com slash Tina. Terms and conditions apply. I must say that when I was reading the book, I really put myself in the shoes of, of your wife, Mary Pat, who you know, is herself, um, uh, you know, a very uh, formidable businesswoman uh, and thinking to myself, you know, how mad she must have felt that, you know, her man was being treated in this way. Um, was she pretty furious about it? Yeah, you read it pretty well. Yeah. Um, I, listen, my wife and I have been together now, married for 33 years, together for 35. So we've got through a lot of really wonderful times together and some difficult times together, as I chronicle in the book. Um, and she really was angry. Um, as were my children. Uh, because remember, we've all known the president now for 17 years. And so they were v all very upset about it. And, and, and you know, it took a lot of explaining on my part, as I just did with you, as to why I would expose myself to some of this stuff. But in the end, they love me. They believe in me. And it's an incredible source of strength in my life to have them. And they're 
upset and anger about it while I'm not happy about it because I never want to do anything that makes them upset or angry if I can avoid it. I think that helps teach all of us lessons about life. Less Mary Pat because she's had those lessons, but our children in particular about how sometimes people let you down. And the question is not what kind of character do they have, but what kind of character do you have? So you, you you seem to me as if you're really passionate about both being a prosecutor and being governor was obviously a job that you you relished. Where are you going to go from here? I mean, like if if we can agree that you know you're not really going to get back into this administration, not with the Jared Kushner issue, it seems. How will you focus that passion? Well, it's interesting, Tina, because I could be in there right now. If I wanted to be Secretary of Homeland Security, I would be it right now. If I wanted to be Secretary of Labor, I would be it right now. The, the real question for me is doing something that I'm passionate about. Uh, and and that I want to do, that I believe I can make a difference in. So if I if I get an opportunity to do that in this administration, I'd be happy to do it. Um, but it's got to be a job that I think I'm really suited for and that I can really make a difference in. But if I don't, I'm 56, so there's a lot of time left to do a lot of different things. The life, I, I hope, is going to take a number of different turns for me over the course of the next number of decades. And so hopefully stay healthy, stay active, I'm working now. I'm doing commentary for ABC News. I wrote this book. I'm doing paid speeches. I'm on a number of boards of directors. And, and, and I have two more kids to put through college. So we have some wood to chop, Tina, and some more money to make to pay for those tuitions. So now, all I, those things are what's motivating me now. Okay, well, I've heard whispers that you might want to run in 2024. Is that a fact? Well, I would never say never, mm-hmm. right? Let's see what it looks like. Here's what I tell you I won't do. I won't run in 2024 if I don't believe I can win. I'll have to see a pathway to victory. If I do, I'll run. But I'm not going to be one of these people who just runs for the fun of it because that's a, not a service to your party or your country. Do you feel that the Bridgegate view was a massive kind of reset? I mean, it was really your only snag, right, in your career. I mean, so how, what did you take from it? Well, I mean, listen, I think the thing you take from it is that you have to be careful about each and every personnel decision that's not only made by you but also is made by others on your behalf. And that's difficult to do when you have 60,000 people working for you. But really, you come down to there were three investigations that matter, a federal investigation by the U.S. Attorney's Office, a legislative investigation by a partisan Democratic legislature, and then an internal investigation that we did. All three came to the same conclusion, that three people devised and executed this scheme without the knowledge of me or any of my top staff. It's kind of hard to live with. When you Do you feel that, that you happened. maybe that you created a kind of aggressive culture in that office that made people think that was what you wanted? No, because Tina, as you said in one of your earlier questions, we created a culture of bipartisanship. You know, I worked with the Democratic legislature every day of my governorship, and we passed a lot of meaningful things together. I had over a hundred Democrats, elected Democrats, who endorsed me for re-election. Quite opposite of a of a of a negative kind of vitriolic um, atmosphere. It was one where we said to everybody, we are a service group. We are going to go out and we're going to serve everybody, whether they're Republican or Democrat. So this was really the exception, not the rule. And, and, and the proof of that is no one can find any other instance where you see any kind of political, you know, dirty tricks, you might call them, or, or, or acts of vengeance by our administration. Did we play hardball politics? Of course we did, because you're in New Jersey. And if you don't play hardball politics, you're not going to survive. But nothing like this. And so... What I took from it is that I put some people, in, you know, two people in particular, Bill Baroni and Bridget Kelly, which were the two people that I selected, I, I put into positions that they were just not capable of performing with ethics and with integrity. And now Bill is in jail 
and Bridget is going to jail in a month or so. Did, were the people who deserted you as your friends, donors at that time that, you know, it was bitter and hard for you to take? Oh, yeah. That, I think that's the thing that Mary Pat has had the hardest time dealing with. If you want to measure Mary Pat's anger and we compare whatever happened to me with Donald Trump versus the abandonment of me in the post-Bridgegate time by a lot of the people who were supporters for years, she's still more angry about the latter than she is about the former. Yeah, well, it is. It's angry very, about both, but... It's very hard to take. So what do you do now, Chris? Um, you know, what's your downtime? How do you spend your time when you're not... Well, Tina, like today, for instance, um, Bridget has a lacrosse game and Patrick has a baseball game. So Mary Pat and I will talk later this afternoon to decide which one's covering which. Um, I spend a lot of time with my kids. And, and someone asked me a great question last week. They said, what are you proudest of since you've left office? And I really had to sit and think about that. And the answer I gave them was, I'm proudest of reconnecting with my family. See, when we go through this stuff, we kid ourselves into believing that we're still totally connected with our family. Oh, yes, I can do it all. Absolutely. You can't. You can't do it all. Something suffers. In my life, because of my commitment to both the U.S. attorney job and the governor job, what suffered with me was my relationship with my family. Mm -hmm. And it was not that it was ever bad. It's just that I wasn't present. And that even when I was home, I was on the phone. I was I was distracted. distracted right. And so what I've I didn't notice that at the time, Tina. And if you had asked me at the time, I would have argued you into the ground that I wasn't doing it. But in the last 15 months, I realized how detached I was for 16 years. So so, you're, so for you, reverses have been a learning experience, right? Totally. Yeah. So my downtime now is, you know, I do more reading than I did before because now I don't have all this official reading I have to do. So I'm enjoying that. Um, and I'm also really enjoying being totally present for my youngest two children who spent their entire lives with their dad in public life. So it's it's really been interesting and fun and makes me feel like a, I think makes me feel like a better father. And I think I'm in fact a better father. Well, Governor Christie, thank you so much for sharing all this with me on TBD. And uh, the book, uh, Let Me Finish, is extremely entertaining and doesn't pull any punches. So thank you. Tina, thanks for having me on. It's great to be with you. You've been listening to TBD with me, Tina Brown, brought to you by Wondery. You can subscribe to TBD on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep up with us however you listen to podcasts. And please don't keep TBD all to yourself. Tweet about it, Instagram it, or, you know, try having an actual conversation with a real person. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That's a great way to spread the word. TBD is produced by Tina Brown, Kathleen Russo, Julie Subrin, Karen Copton, Justine Giannino, and Michael Solomon. Original theme music is composed by Forrest Gray. Come back next time for more smart people on TBD. TBD.